Hashem over the years and, and personally, and I, I know that by all of them, the uh, the intensity, the integrity, the commitment, the dedication, the perseverance that they have with regards to Limit Atar and the Beis HaMedrash spills over uh, to here in the way that they do business with that same integrity, with the same dedication, and uh, and I only wish them to continue Hatzlach in both areas, and may they continue to be Mekadesh Shmei Barabim. Amen. Um, the most recognizable Jewish symbol in the Gullus is undoubtedly the menorah. First of all, it's featured prominently upon the Arch of Titus, um, which unfortunately has hung over our heads throughout our period um, in the Gullus. But it was that same symbol which was adopted in 1949 as the emblem of the State of Israel. That exact menorah with all of its uh, faults and, uh, and problems, that menorah that's on the, the Arch of Titus, you know, with the historical accuracy or halakhic accuracy of the menorah, um, was adopted as the emblem of the State of Israel, which I think, of course, is to uh, imply that uh, that might have been the symbol that hung over our head, but of course that uh, continues to fly above us, uh, as we return to the State of Israel. So the menorah is undoubtedly very um, recognizable universally, but more than just as a symbol um, of the modern State of Israel, and beyond, um, the mitzvah of Hanukkah enjoys, uh, or the message of Hanukkah resonates um, most loudly and, 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 and as far reaches the community more so almost than any other mitzvah. According to the 2020 Pew study that was conducted in conjunction with the 2020 census, they found that while 60% of Jews, 6 and 10, celebrate Pesach in one way or another, or own a mezuzah, it's about 6 and 10, 5 and 10, one and two, you know, about 50%, keep or observe Yom Kippur in one way or another, 40% um, are aware of Shabbos and do something in connection with Shabbos, 20% observe Kashrus, um, again, to one degree or another, 80%, 8 out of 10, more so than any other mitzvah, um, uh, 80% of Jews of all affiliations, or lack thereof, are associated in one way or another with the holiday of Hanukkah, either they own a menorah or go about lighting the menorah. And that notion that um, Hanukkah, uh, or the message of Hanukkah, resonates m- most, most loudly throughout the, the Jewish community is something that perhaps Chazal already alluded to in the Gemara Masech Shabbos. The Gemara tells Masech the Shabbos that there are certain uh, psilos and shmanim, certain wicks and oils that cannot be used uh, for Nehra Shabbos because they don't burn well. And there was a fear that they would blow out. However, the Gemara tells us the Shabbos that all the psigos and all of the shmanim can be used on Hanukkah. And so Hashem quotes the name of Chetush Yarim, who explains that there are three parts to a candle. There's the ner, the shemen, and the psigo, which is a Rosh Tevis for nefesh. Ner, shemen, and psigo, the flame, the wick, and the oil. Uh, and that is a Rosh Tevis nefesh, because, as of course, the Pesach tells us, say for Mishle, ki ner Hashem nishmas adam, the candle in a certain sense represents the soul, of the individual. And the Chedush Harim continues that one of the things, or one of the mitzvahs, that can kindle that pintal that divine spark that's inside of every Jew, is the mitzvah of Shabbos. Shabbos is quite effective in doing that. You invite someone over for a Shabbos meal, there's, you know, it has a, an almost unparalleled effect, an unpredictable effect, uh, upon the individual. You never really know how, how long that, that experience can last with them. Even years later, they could reflect about an experience uh, that they had at someone's Shabbos table. So Shabbos is an extremely effective instrument in the Kiruv toolbox. However, more so, even than Shabbos, meaning the reason why we use even more Shemin and more Psyos and Hanukkah is because however effective Shabbos is, and however many souls are turned on by Shabbos, even more are kindled and awakened 
um, uh, by the mitzvah of Ne'er Hanukkah. So Ne'er Hanukkah has an even broader appeal and effect and impact even than uh, Ne'er Shabbos. And since Ne'er Hanukkah enjoys this kind of popularity uh, with all Jews and somehow keeps that connection, keeps them tethered to Jewish life in some way or another, and given the fact that the mitzvah of Ne'er Hanukkah is not just something we do in the home in order to elevate the home, but it's something that we open up our windows to do, which is quite unusual um, in, in the, in the Jewish, uh, J- Jewish communities, to open up our windows and invite other people to look into our homes because we want to spread and, you know, and, and, and promote the mitzvah of Ne'er Hanukkah to the broader community. It, it is a time, therefore, I think, to reflect on promoting ideas to the larger Jewish community beyond you know, the confines of our smaller knit group and to, you know, to, to, to think about the mitzvah of Kiruv, of bringing other people close and, and bringing them the light of, of Yiddishkeit uh, in general. So let's just take a step back and reflect, is there a mitzvah of Kiruv? And if there is, what is that mitzvah? So the mit- uh, Kiruv certainly touches on numerous mitzvahs, probably no less than seven, there might be more, but no less than seven mitzvahs one fulfills if he is makari of other people and brings them closer to Yiddishkeit. Perhaps the most obvious is the Pasuk in Parashat Kedoshim, that we are obligated for a person not keeping the term misses properly to give them rebuke and to instruct them as to how they should go about keeping the term in the mitzvahs. That is... Um, uh, parallel to another concept, or is entirely synonymous with another concept that is based on the Pasuk in Parashas Bechukaisai, where the Pasuk tells us that in the midst of the Teichach, and one man will stumble over his friend, and the Gemara comments in Mesechtis Sanhedrin, that each man will stumble over the Averos of their friend, because in Judaism there is a kind of collective responsibility. If one person is performing an Averos, it's as if we've all performed an Averos. If one person is failing to do a mitzvah, it's as if we have all failed to do that mitzvah in a certain sense. That is either entirely the same as the obligation of Tochach or perhaps a parallel obligation to give a person rebuke, but also not only because it's self-serving, not only because I care about him, but it's also self-serving because Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebazet. The Gemara tells him himself, the Sivomis, obviously, that just like there's an obligation to give rebuke, if that rebuke will not be received well, and in fact could have the opposite effect of pushing the per- person further away, so Kashem Shemitzvah Loimar, Dabar Nishma, Kach Mitzvah Shaloi Loimar, Dabar Shainon Nishma, just like there's a mitzvah to say rebuke if it will be received well, there's a mitzvah to refrain from doing so if it will not be received well, but if you can, and uh, effectively communicate how to go about observing the mitzvahs more properly, one would be obligated to do so by virtue of these two mitzvahs, right? And to prevent oneself from being implicit in that same Aveir, or the failure to do the mitzvah, based on the principle of Kol Yisrael Revim Zebazeh. So, two mitzvahs so far. There's a third, though, which is also pretty obvious, based on the Pasuk in Parashat we are obligated to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu. and the Rambam has a particularly unique formulation over here, where the Rambam writes that that mitzvah includes not only that I should love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but as an expression of my love, I should spread that love to others as well. If a person loves crypto or NFTs, they, for some reason, cannot control themselves from spreading that infectious uh, affinity towards those investment vehicles to others, for whatever reason. Right? So if you love something, but if you love something so much, you want other people to enjoy it too, and you tell them, you tell them about it. So, so too, a person, when he loves a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that love should overflow into loving, into expressing that love, uh, or spreading that love to others. For that reason, the Navi Yishayo describes Avram Avinu, who spread the love of Kaddish Baruch Hu to you know, legions and hordes of followers who came down with him to Eretz Yisrael, the Navi describes him as Avram Oyhavi, Avram, the one who loved me. 
uh, almost the paradigm of this notion and this concept because Avram Avinu spread the love uh, almost in a, again in an unparalleled way to, to, to others. So therefore, um, spreading the love of Kaddish Baruch Hu, knowledge of Kaddish Baruch Hu to others is, is a fulfillment of a havta as Hashem Alekecha. Now, uh, together with that, um, if I believe loving Kaddish Baruch Hu is an objective good thing, then when I spread that love to you, I'm also in fulfillment of the post-compassionist Kedoshim, of Ahav to the Reyach HaKamecha. I love you like I love myself. I want you to have the same benefits that I have. And one of those uh, things that I enjoy in my life is a pillar, a cornerstone of my life is loving Kaddish Baruch. If I spread that to you, I'm also in fulfillment of Ahav to the Reyach HaKamecha. Uh, a fifth pretty obvious mitzvah fulfilled in being Makayi Vachaykim and teaching others about Judaism is the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. The Pasuk says, You should teach your children um, to speak in Torah. Pasuk with regards to Maimon Arsini, an obligation to teach my children Torah, my grandchildren Torah, but there's also an obligation to teach others Torah too. The Pasuk says in Parshas Eikeh, You should teach your children, Elu Talmidecha. So the Rambam writes over here in Hilchus Talmud Torah, there's an obligation to teach, children, to teach Torah to your children, your grandchildren, and to others too. So if a person teaches others about Yiddishkeit, formal setting, informal setting, you are, in, you are in fulfillment of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. So we have no less than five mitzvahs so far. We have, um, we have, and the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. The Gemara Mesech, the Sanhedrin, though, introduces two additional mitzvahs. The Gemara there is discussing, let's say, I see my friend drowning, in a body of water. How do you know that you're obligated, or in some other mortal danger, how do you know that you're obligated to save him? The Gemara cites the Pesach, Don't stand idly by while your friend's life is in danger. So the Gemara says, you derived it from there. You could have derived it from a different source. The say that if I see the lost object of my friend, you should return it to him. If I have to return my friend's lost object, how much more so do I have to return his physical safety, you know, to his, 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 uh, his life? to him if I'm in the position to do so. So if I see him drowning, I'm obligated, of course, to save him because of Ahashev Oisalev. I have to return his animal. I have to return his life to him. So Gemara says, no. Well, Isam and Adam Yacha comes to introduce an additional dimension and an obligation that even if I can't save him myself, which would be demanded by the Mitzvah of even if I can't save him myself, I don't know how to swim. Um, I don't know how you know, to prevent the armed <coughs> robbers from coming into his house. I am obligated, because by virtue of the Pesach, to hire other people to do so on my behalf or on his, on his behalf. You're obligated to go to the, to the Tirka of Megar Agure, of going and hiring people to do it. You know, uh, getting Hatzel or getting the lifeguard that can save him from the water, and that's, that's because of Loisamel Adam Riyach. So the Minchaschinoch draws what is a very fair conclusion. That if I am obligated because of the mitzvah of Aveda and Loisaman Adam to save the physical life of my friend, um, then, you know, from our perspective, spiritual accomplishments are even greater sometimes, or a spiritual life is greater than a person's uh, even physical life. So then, if I'm obligated to, 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 to restore his physical health, and well-being, because of these two mitzvahs, then I should be obligated to restore his spiritual well-being as well, based on these two mitzvahs. So we have an additional two mitzvahs, no less than seven mitzvahs involved in Kira, of the additional two mitzvahs being Leisam and and the mitzvah of Hashavah Saved. The Archaim HaKadosh has a very powerful, um, when you read it inside, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's really moving. But the Archaim HaKadosh in Parashas Kiseitze reads this obligation, you know, the, the assertion of the Minchas that if it applies to a person's physical body, how much more so to their spiritual self, 
to rehabilitate them and return it to them. Because of these two mitzvahs, he reads it into the Pasuk regarding Hashavah Savet and Parashas Kisaitzu. The Pasuk says, uh, you shouldn't see the animal of your friend that's lost and you hide your eyes from it. Rather, you should return it to your friend. If your friend is not close to you, you don't know who he is, so you can't return it to him. Still doesn't give you license to ignore it. You have to bring it into your house, take care of it. It will be with you until your friend comes to search it out. And then you should return it to him. So, this is really referring not only to lost objects, but to lost souls. That if I see my friend who's lost, if I see my friend who's a lost soul, he's lost in my Kaddish Baruch Hu, you cannot hide your eyes from him. Rather, you're obligated to pay attention to it. You have to return him to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But what if him He's not interested in coming back to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. He says, who is this Rebbein Shalom that you speak of and I have no interest in getting to know him? So what should you do? So then can you discard him? Then can you ignore him? No. Welcome him into your home. Embrace him. Bring him into the base medrash. Teach him about Torah. Keep him there until you ignite that spark that's inside of him. And he goes back and he searches for a Kodesh Baruch and then you should return him to the Rebbein Shalom. So the Archaim HaKadosh reads, again, the, 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 the additional... Um, aspect that Minchas Kinnik introduced, that this has to do not only with physical safety, but, but, but spiritual well-being, he reads it into the psukim themselves. What is it in the middle? Why is this mitzvah in the middle of Parsha of Milchama? It's in Parsha's Kiseitze. So Ibn Ezra asked that question. Why is the mitzvah of Kiru V'choykim, or Hashavah Saveda, in the middle of, of the Parsha of War? It's a kasha that Ibn Ezra raises. He doesn't answer it. So Penach Libos, Penach Libos was the Rosh Hashiva of Chavetz Chaim. As I say, Chavetz Chaim is really, in terms of franchising Kiruv, it's probably only second to Chabad. I mean, they're they're pretty uh, pretty effective. Uh, maybe today they've been overtaken by other movements, uh, which uh, you know, and other organizations, but pretty successful and pretty um, you know expansive. You know. A lot of different locations. So anyway, they, they believed very heavily and they preached it within the yeshiva, the, uh, the objective of harbotz HaTorah. They call it different. They don't call it They call it being marbitz, to be marbitz Torah. So Rebbe writes in the reason why this mitzvah of being makar of bringing people close to Yiddishkeit is found in the parish of war is because no one has time to do this. Who has time to do this? And that's exactly why the Torah comes in. He says, even in the middle of war, even when it seems like we're fighting our schedules and we're fighting all the obligations that we have, who has time in the middle of war when we ourselves are in danger with all these things on our plate to stop and do a Shavas HaVeda? And that's exactly why the Torah puts it there to teach you, no, even though you have all these things going on, literally walking around with your armor and thinking about the enemy, you have an obligation to focus on the mitzvah that's at hand, which is the mitzvah of Shavu And so too in our own schedules, in our own lives, so much of us, you know, so many of us are being pulled in so many different directions, that's not necessarily an excuse to avoid or to ignore this very important mitzvah of, of being, returning people to, to our Kaddish Baruch Hu. So a number of mitzvahs, as we've already mentioned, that are, that are touched on, um, that one can fulfill by engaging in Kirov But even more than that, it might even have the status of Hatzalus Nefoshus. The Shulchan Aruch says over here, that if a person's child, Le'elenu, is kidnapped, and there's a fear that they're going to be raised um, without the benefit of a Jewish education, they won't be raised as Jews, one is allowed to be Machal and obligated to do so, one is allowed and obligated to be Machal Shabbos to return them 
to the Jewish community to see to it that they will be raised as Jews and they will be provided a Jewish education. And the obvious implication of this is that to provide someone or to save someone who there's a, a threat that they won't be able to be raised with a Jewish education, with a Jewish identity, would have the status of pikuach nefesh, it might even justify chilo Shabbos, which is why the Chafetz Chaim over here, Ois Tess, in his letters, writes, and the Chafetz Chaim has, is so unappreciated. I mean, I, I, we all obviously appreciate the, the, the Mishnah Bura and the Sefer Chafetz Chaim, but th- there is so much more even to the Chafetz Chaim, which, which is, 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 is not well known. So, but the Chafetz Chaim in his uh, letters writes over here that today the uh, Purita, which is coming to our uh, communities of those who are leaving the path of Torah and the mitzvahs, um, is, 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 is tantamount to Sakonistafoshis. And he compares it to a lot of people who are standing on the bridge, and all of a sudden the bridge collapses. He says, Everyone who was standing on the bridge that was over the river has fallen into the river, and they're drowning. And then a guy is passing by, and he knows how to swim. And he can save some of them, but instead, he's a ben Torah. I'm sorry, I can't save you. I have a seder now in Beis Medrash. I have to go say Kaddish. I'm sorry, I can't save you as you're drowning, you know, the person who's drowning in the river. The person who thinks this way is not thinking with Is this a time to look for mitzvahs? It's our obligation to save souls, to save as many souls as we possibly can. So this has the status, it seems like for the Chafetz Chaim as well, status of Hatzalus Nefoshis. The Chazan Ish has a similar thing in his letters, but he writes over here, it's quoted in the Sefer Maisa Ish, one of the intellectual biographies of the Chazan Ish, that, um, that today, the way you fulfill Hatzalus Nefoshis and the way you fulfill Teichacha is not by giving negative rebuke, but is providing people with a Jewish education. If you can get them into yeshivas, that's how we fulfill, or p- p- put them in some other context where they can learn about Yiddishkeit. Um, that's a fulfillment of all of these mitzvahs, that's how you fulfill all these mitzvahs, and, and by doing so, you would in fact be in fulfillment of, of the, uh, the, you know, this Hatzalus uh, Nefoshis. And that's even if it comes at some expense to us, right? As the Chafetz Chaim already alluded to, I have a seder, I have minyanim to go to, I have other obligations and things that I want to do with regards to my own personal growth. Sometimes you have to put that on hold in order to help others. The the famous Samsefer about this Samsefer um, comments on a contradiction within the Hashkafa of Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva, of course, is the time in the Midrash that comments on the pasuk Vahafta Riyacha Kamoicha says Rabbi Kiva Zech Valgol this is a cardinal principle in the Torah, <laughs> similar to the comment of Beis Hillel, right? This is, this is, this is the, the foundation of everything else. However, um, the Gemara tells himself about Messiah that if you have two people walking along in the wilderness and there's only enough water for one of them, and if he drinks, the other will perish. If he's the one who owns the uh, canteen of water, he's entitled to drink the water. Uh, even though, um, by doing so, that's going to cause his friend uh, to die. And the opinion of Rabbi Kiva is based on the Pesach of Parshish Bahar, Your friend should live with you, but your life takes precedence over his life. You have the right to drink the water, even though that's going to lead to his demise. How could it be the very same Rabbi Kiva who says, also tells us um, that I would say if Rabbi Kiva would have merch, not that he did, but if he would, um, on one side of the t-shirt, it would say, 
On the other side, it would say, your life takes precedence over your friend, and we could tell what people prioritize by which way they wore the t-shirt. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great t-shirt. But yeah, anyway. anyway. How do you resolve that contradiction? So some Sefer is a famous comment. It's really famous because Ramosha cites it in Igor Smosha and disagrees. But the some Sefer has, I think it's in Torah in ter- Smosha and Chumash, that no, Rabbi Kiva feels fundamentally your life takes precedence for the life of your friend. But when it comes to Torah, to teaching Torah, then you have to sometimes put your own Torah on hold to teach Torah to others. Why? Why do I have to do that? If my life takes precedence over your life, and that's true in spiritual, spiritual, you know, spirituality as well, probably my lulav takes precedence over your lulav. So then, and for, you know, as far as I'm concerned, so then why should my Torah take precedence over your Torah? So some sefer explains further based on the Gemara Masech the Sukkah that comes in the pasuk in Eishes Chayil and say from Mishlei Pia Pasta Bechachma V'Seiras Chesed Al Lishayna. She had the Torah of kindness on her tongue. Ask the Gemara, is there a Torah of kindness and Torah of unkindness? So the Gemara says, yes, there is. A Torah of unkindness is a selfish Torah, that a person learns Torah only for his own edification and his own growth. A person who learns Torah, having a mind to teach it to others and does so, is Torah schesed. That's a higher level of Torah. It's a different kind of a Torah, but that's the Torah that we're expected to fulfill. Not only to learn Torah in a selfish way, but to be Torah schesed al to have Torah that we share with others. And that, says that some Torah inevitably means, sometimes we're going to have to put my own growth on hold to enhance the growth of others. And that's a fulfillment of my own limit of Torah, because it makes it more deep, and it makes it into a Torah schesed al-Roshayna. Rabbi disagrees. Ramayusha says, no, it's not true. <laughs> Ramayusha says the same way. My, you know, my, my physical existence comes before, you know, I have to prioritize that. So too, I have to prioritize my own spiritual um, aspirations. Um, and that, that's true in Talmud Torah too. However, Ramayusha does agree that you do have to sometimes take from your own resources to give to others, no different than any other kind of tzedakah. Ramayusha writes, just like there's miser in terms of tzedakah, you have to take off a tenth of your money and earnings and give it to others. So too there's miser in terms of other resources too. He bases this upon Yaakov Avinu, who gave one of his children to be dedicated his entire life to service of a Kodesh Baruch in the Beis HaMikdash. He gave over Levi. He had ten children, more or less. So he gave Levi over to the Beis HaMikdash. So too says Ramayusha, you have to give over a tenth of other resources too, such as your time. You have to give a tenth of your time, even though it comes to the expense of your own learning, your own aspirations, you have to give over a tenth of your time to help others uh, in the military. Huh? Yeah, it's one twelfth. Yeah, yeah. Which See, side Meisner, do yeah. you want on the T-shirt? <laughs> anyway, so there's an obligation, clearly of Kirov, we mentioned numerous pieces that it touches upon, and it might even have the status of Hatzolus Nefoshis. And even though it comes at the expense of, right, of my own growth and learning, my own spiritual aspirations, I sometimes have to put that on hold to one degree or another, right? Uh, we could argue about the details some. So I think Moshe put that on hold in order to help others. But who has to pay for this? Who's paying the bill? Who's footing the bill? Now, we mentioned the touches on numerous mitzvahs. Touches on numerous mitzvahs. Usually we have a rule when it comes to mitzvahs, the Ramah is a klal and Hilchah Sukkah. It's quoted elsewhere in, in Yardea too. That When it comes to mitzvahs ase, you have to give over a fifth of that which you have in order to fulfill the mitzvah. If it's a mitzvah loy so then you have to sacrifice everything that you have 
rather than violate the loisa, say, no one has the right to say, when I'm traveling, uh, you know, I don't, uh, it's going to cost me too much money to get kosher food, so I have the right to violate, so I have the right to eat the tarfos, you know, there's no such thing. When it comes to loisa, say, you have to give up everything that you have, rather than violate the loisa, say, you have to give up a fifth of that which you have. Should we apply the same thing to Kirib too? We mentioned it touches on numerous mitzvahs, so mitzvah say a fifth, if it touches on a loisa, say, maybe everything that you have. Um, therefore, we would have thought, yes, but however, the Ramah over here, Aisud Gimel, second side of the sheet, quotes in the name of the Mari Vile that no, you don't. Even though you're Chayav to be Moicha, to rebuke, to protest against those who do Averis, anybody who can rebuke and does not, to be other Limchois, he's complicit. In that same Avera itself, because of the collective responsibility principle, you do not have to spend money in order to give teichacha, in order to give rebuke, perhaps in order to bring people closer. You do not have to spend money. You don't have to spend money. Why not? Why not? So it could be um, because, uh, it, well, one could have argued, by the way, you even have to send everything that you have. Because one of the misses we talked about was a loisase, was loisamad al-damreyecha. So maybe one has to give up everything that he has rather than violate loisamad al-damreyecha. So you could have argued, by the way, loisamad al-damreyecha you violate passively. See, I have to give up everything I have rather than eat tarfus, machal sasuris, because that's proactive. Here, you violate loisamad al-damreyecha passively. So maybe that's not the same. Maybe I don't have to give up everything that I have rather than violate loisase passively. We could have debated that. It's a debate in the Pisley Tshuva. But, but at least the fifth, right? At least the fifth. Um, so why not? So it could be um, that it's because of Mari Vile, and he, he cites this already, that he's basing himself on that Kamar Masech Sanhedrin. What are the two primary mitzvahs or, you know, uh, that are driving this discussion of Kirva Chaykim? Is Hashavas Aveda and Loisam Rodam Reyecha. As the Gemara said, Sanhedrin, if I see my friend, he's drowning, I have to save him. The Menachasino said, well, if that's true with regards to physical safety, spiritual well being as well, I have an obligation of Hashavas Aveda, and if I fail to do so, it's Loisam Rodam Reyecha. I see. But if that's the case, I don't have an obligation to spend money to do Hashavah Saveda. The Gemara says in Mesechus Bav Metziah, it's going to cost me money to do Hashavah Saveda. The whole reason I'm doing Hashavah Saveda is to restore your property to you. Why do I have to sacrifice my money to restore your property? My property, my interest, take precedence over the interest of others. I should be charitable, but I have to be concerned with my own interest. So I did, I'm not obligated to sacrifice my own financial security to secure yours. Yeah, but you'll tell me, what about So if, if you look back at that Gemara Masech, the Sanhedrin, the Gemara said from we derive, uh, if, even if I can't save your, your physical safety myself, right? I don't know how to swim, I have to hire lifeguards who do know how to swim in order to save you. However, the Yad Ramah and the Me'iri, both right over there, who gets the bill at the end for the lifeguards? Who gets the bill for saving your life? You do. The person who was drowning, not because they were poishea, you know, they were taking some stupid selfie and they fell into the river. No, even if not, even if it had nothing to do with them, it was a flood or something. That person is the one who's obligated to pay the bill. Because at the end of the day, I'm saving him. Yeah, but Loisam Adam is my mitzvah. No, but it's rooted in Hashavah Saveda. Loisam Adam came to modify, came to add a second dimension to Hashavah Saveda, but it's fundamentally Hashavah Saveda. Osama al told me I'm obligated to not only save myself, but to enlist others. 
but I don't have to pay the bill, just like I don't have to pay for Hashavah Saveda. So I believe what the, where the Marivalo is really coming from is that if this has the status of Hashavah Saveda, I'm returning you to your, to your spiritual you know, place where you should be, I'm returning your spiritual well-being to you, that's like Hashavah Saveda, it's the derivative of Hashavah Saveda, and just like I'm not obligated to pay to return someone else's Saveda, I'm not obligated to pay for this mitzvah of Teichach Hashavah Saveda either. The Avnei Nezer, though, and the Minchas Yitzchak, that's dying wise, raise further complication. Okay, I understand Hashavah Saveda and Loisamar Adam Reyecha. You can get out of that. Loisamar Adam Reyecha is just coming to modify Hashavah Saveda and to deepen the obligation. But we talked about many other mitzvahs. What about Hoycheach Hoycheach Hasamisecha? Whose mitzvah is that? Isn't that my mitzvah? To give you rebuke? Shouldn't I have to spend a fifth, no different than any other mitzvah that I have to do? Um, you know, that I have to spend a fifth in order to perform that mitzvah, like lulav, like sukkah, like uh, matzah. Aren't I obligated? I'm obligated to spend the fifth for those mitzvahs. Why am I not obligated to spend the fifth for I get. That's because it's really a financial, I'm here to restore your financial uh, you know, uh, portfolio. So, yeah, but I, it can't come at my own expense. So they seem to disagree with the Ramah. And they all know, it's like any other mitzvah, you're obligated to spend the fifth of that which you have in order to do it. But the Ramah doesn't say that. The Ramah seems to assume that you don't have to do that. So it seems to me that um, it's because the Ramah believes my obligation to give you rebuke, rebuke is really about you. Meaning, yes, it's true, it's my obligation to give you rebuke. If I fail to do so, um, so then I'm complicit. But in the end of the day, I'm helping you um, do your mitzvah. If I'm unable to give you rebuke, because you won't be receptive to it, I'm off the hook for the collective responsibility side of it too. Because the collective responsibility is a function of my obligation to give you rebuke. If I'm negligent there, so then I bear some responsibility for not giving you rebuke. But it's really rooted in giving rebuke. Giving rebuke to someone else to perform a mitzvah is really more about them than it is about me. And just like I'm not obligated to pay for everyone's lulav, I'm not obligated to pay for your esrik if you can afford it. Is it tzedakah to help you if you can't? Surely. But if you can afford your own lulav, if you can afford your own esrik, if you can afford your own matzah, I'm not under no obligation to pay for it, you know, to, to, to pay for you. So just like I'm not under an obligation to pay for you for your mitzvahs, I'm not under an obligation to pay for rebuking you about your mitzvahs. Because fundamentally, it's your mitzvah. So the buck really gets passed to the person uh, who, has the, who has the mitzvah themselves, uh, who's receiving the rebuke, not the one who's giving the rebuke, and maybe that's why the Ramah feels you don't have to pay. But again, others disagree. Minchas Yitzchak, Tavnei felt that maybe, you know, they, they wonder with the Ramah, why don't you have to pay? Why should it be different than any other mitzvah? Some suggest the reason why it's different um, is because maybe the Ramah here is talking about the scenario where I'm pretty confident the person won't listen to me. If I know he will listen to me, maybe I would be obligated to pay. Or maybe, and I think this is a little bit more compelling, the Ramah is talking about a situation where there's the possibility that he will revert to his previous lifestyle. Kirov, I don't know the percentages, and I bet you'd be hard-pressed to find out what they are, has a high recidivism rate. There's a lot of people who get interested and then go back. Not surprising, it's not the fault of anyone, it's just human nature, but people tend to resort back to their normal state of being. So if they, even if they got inspired for a moment here or there, or even a year or two, a lot return. So it's a bad investment. Meaning I might be obligated to pay. I might be obligated. It might actually be my mitzvah, not the person to whom I'm giving to But I don't know if he's going to listen. And even if he does, he might end up going back. So since there is that danger there, that's why the Ramah says you're not obligated to pay for it. It's, it's simply a bad investment. It's simply a bad investment. Okay, it, is about the outcome? Sure, yeah. 
So you would not be obligated to buy an esrog for a guy who's not from? Oh. I still think it's tzedakah, right? Am I obligated to pay for his mitzvahs? No. If he can't afford it, it's certainly tzedakah to help him do so. So, right, right, so, or, 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 let's say, let's say the obligation for is really his obligation, meaning to pay for it, if it costs money. I don't know why it should cost money, but if it does cost money, because you, you have to hire designated mochichim, right, who's going to pay their salary, it should really be him. But he's not, he can't pay for it. He has no obligation, no ability to pay for it. Is it tzedakah to pay for it for him? Yes, it is. He has no interest to buy it. He could afford it, wealthy man. Uh, that also right. What if he doesn't want? What is he's unaware. He's unaware that he well, that he, he wants it. For the, for the he's unaware that he wants it. In the end of the day, if he's a wealthy man and he enjoys what you're teaching and benefits from it, he'll probably end up funding your whole organization. So it's probably a good investment on the back end. But I'm just saying. But I do think if that is the case, and it really is a tzedakah, but it's not necessarily my formal obligation. I think we do need to consider within the hierarchy of tzedakahs. And by the way, one can make the case that this is the highest on the totem pole, the pile of tzedakah priorities, because it might even have the status of Hatzalus Nefoshes, right? Hatzalus Nefoshes, this other guy should really pay for saving his own life. But if he can't pay for it, it's certainly tzedakah to save his life, even if I end up having to foot the bill. And that might rise to the highest level of priorities. We think about the Ukraine situation and all that. It's really their obligation to pay for it, but if they can't pay for it, we have an obligation to help them out. And it's a pretty high priority on the scale of, you know, tzedakahs that we have. It's how tell us not fascists. But I do think even, given all that, even if what we're doing is a tzedakah, not even any of the tzedakah of helping, you know, doing a mitzvah, help you, you do a mitzvah, or even if it has the status of Hatzalus Nefoshes, I do think we need to take into consideration those points that were raised by the Paiskim in explaining the Ramah. And that is, number one, how successful are we going to be, or do we presume to be? And number two, um, what is the recidivism rate? We have the right to know how successful we're going to be in the long term, not only in the short term. A final nakuda, I would add, is that if we're going to prop this up to the top of the list of priorities, we should probably also distinguish between two different streams within Kirov. One is those who just get people to do mitzvahs, and the other is those who try and turn people's lives around and make them religious Jews. Those are not always the same Kirov organizations. Putting on filling outside of Penn Station is not turning lives around. Now, it might, and you never know where one Shabbos meal or one fill-in, you know, Hanukkah's fill-in could lead. It's true. You never know. But we have to go based on what the objectives of those who are engaging in this Kirov movement are aspiring to do. If all they're aspiring to do is put on tefillin and they're going to leave it like that and there's no follow-up, it probably won't go that, that far. So if that's all they're doing, I don't think you get the benefit of being at the top of the totem pole. No one's going to call that Hatzalus Nefoshis. Is it even a tzedakah? Yeah, you'll, you'll be doing mitzvahs. This guy can afford it. He doesn't want to pay for it. Okay. Yeah. Maybe yes, maybe no. Certainly if he can't afford it, you know, be an obligation to help him perform the mitzvah if he's interested in doing it, but I don't think it rises to the top of the totem pole of tzedakahs necessarily, unless it's hatzolus nefoshes, unless we're actually turning lives around. But again there, I'd be interested to know what are the stats, what is, you know, you know uh, how successful are we going to be, and what is the recidivism rate in terms of balancing it with other tzedakah priorities. But this is, by the way, not only a personal obligation that we have as individuals, as community we seem to have an obligation to have these organizations and, and, and initiatives to bring people closer. That's part of our communal responsibility. The Gemara tells us, if you look back at Oizvav, uh, the Gemara Baba Basra, tells us, were it not for Yeshua ben Gamla, Torah would have been forgotten from Klal Yisrael. What did Yeshua ben Gamla do? He established a system of Jewish day schools. Because prior to the time of Yeshua ben Gamla, if you had a father, you learned Torah with your father. If you didn't have a father, you, didn't, you weren't able to learn Torah. 
came to Shubin Gamla, he established day schools in every city, in every municipality, in every town, and that enabled all Jewish children to get a Jewish education, to learn Torah. Rabbi Shubin Gamla saved Torah and Klal Yisrael. Ask the Marsha, we're being a little dramatic, no? There were some kids who weren't able to learn. Some had fathers, probably, presumably most had fathers, and were able to learn. So aren't we being dramatic when we say he saved Torah and Klal Yisrael, when he just saved some children and not others? That's the kasha the Marsha raises over there. So, obviously, what the Gemara is saying is, if one Jewish child isn't learning, that affects all of us. That is a national problem. That is a communal problem. That's something that's not a problem for one family or another. As a community, we're failing if some kids are falling through the cracks. If there are some kids, and even if it's a minority, who aren't getting a Jewish education, Torah is failing. In order for it to be successful, everybody's got to get a Jewish education. So that's why he saved Torah and Klal Yisrael, meaning he enabled us to fulfill our obligation as a community. So they quote in the name of Moshe Shapiro, it's in a sefer called Ba'avoyse Sahava, about Kirif, they quote it there in the name of Moshe Shapiro, that as a community, we have an obligation to educate the Tinoiko Shenizbu as well, to establish organizations that will, just like we have an obligation to establish yeshivas for every Jewish child, we have an obligation as a community to have um, initiatives and, and organizations that are tasked with educating the larger population who wasn't, uh, didn't benefit from, you know, they didn't have, enjoy a Jewish education growing up. Who has to pay for that? Well, well them, yeah, if they can. Um, and if not, that would be a tzedakah like any other tzedakah, but it is a communal obligation, perhaps, that we have. The, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Mamish has a fantastic drasha uh, about, it's based on a comment of the Balatanya, um, about this with regards to the mitzvah of Egla Rufa. The Pasuk tells him, Pasha Shaftim, if you find a corpse, you find a kimatzel karol, that's fallen in the field between two cities. And no one is claiming responsibility. So the Sanhedrin Agado comes, they measure the distance between the two cities, whichever city is closest to um, has to perform the procedure of the Egla Rufa. They bear responsibility. It's, uh, and, you know, they have to do what the you know, whole procedure of Egla Rufa, and they have to say, our hands didn't spill this blood. And why do they bear responsibility? Because if it came, it's closest to that city, it probably came from that city, and they sent him out without proper tzedel derech, without proper provisions, and levoya, no one was escorting him. So that's why they bear that kind of responsibility. So writes the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I gave it to you over here, in the Kutei Sichis and Parsha Shoiftim. He says, the same thing is true in Ruchnius. If we find a corpse, that has fallen in the field, in the wilderness, the wilderness of spiritual wilderness, he's a lost soul, so just like the Pesach says by Esav, Esav was Ish Yodei outside Ish Sadeh. He was a man of the wilderness. He had left Yiddishkeit. Uh, you know, so, so, so too, you find the man who has left Yiddishkeit. You find the person who has uh, far off the reservation. Then we all bear some kind of responsibility because we send them out without the proper tzedel aderech, without the proper levaya, without escorting them and giving them a proper Jewish education. And that's a responsibility on the collective. And we all have blood on our hands a little bit. You know, if we're close by and we have the ability to stop it, we're, we're a little bit complicit as well. And this is a communal obligation to bring people closer, like Reis Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, along the same lines as we saw from that Gemara and Baba Basra. So, so too, it's our obligation as a community to have these, it's a priority to have these kinds of organizations and initiatives. The only thing, again, I will add is the following. And I think it needs to be counterbalanced. With, 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 let's just be frank, right? A lot of the people today who are, who are we would call, you know, the, the subjects of the Kirov movement or, or those who are trying to be closer, were never, or at least in recent memory, were never part of our community that they then left the community. They've been part of our community for generations. 
um, obviously they're Jews and part of a larger community, but what I mean is, you know, the city and the person leaving the city, that imagery certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't apply. They've left the city a long time ago. Left the city a long time ago. I don't think we can write them off. I think the application, you know, the argument of the Lubavitch Rebbe still applies, but I do think we also need to consider the people who are literally in the city now who might be leaving. And when we have to weigh that issue with those who've left for generations, I think we have to give priority to those who are in our community and are in a precarious situation, who are wobbling, who are teetering. We have to worry about that first, the people who are literally in the city right now. And what I'm talking about is, let's say, we have kids who can't get into yeshivas. So yes, it's wonderful. We should start care of yeshivas throughout all of Europe to take care of all the Jewish children who are not getting a Jewish education. Yeah, but we also have to support and, and fortify our own yeshivas to make sure that the kids who are here now don't leave. And if we don't, uh, you have kids not getting into schools, it's not only a Lakewood problem anymore, it's a Muncie problem, and it's going to, you know, it's uh, other communities too. That's something we need to consider, and I think that, that they're in the city now, we have to make sure that they don't leave and get lost, become lost souls. I think that, it's, you know, that, that's also a priority, maybe even a higher priority. That doesn't mean to the exclusion of the creating cure of organizations, but I do think um, it's something we have to, we have to consider you know, more, uh, we, we have to give a, a little bit greater weight um, to that. And, and, and included in that is creating teachers. We have to incentivize to be teachers, which is not a popular career path. Um, I don't think it ever was, but it's less popular than it was in recent years. We're not going to have educators in our community unless we make it somewhat financially viable for them to be there. So that's also, and we need better teachers instead of the bottom of the barrel teacher because we couldn't find anybody else. They're probably not going to do a good job if, you know, if, if uh, they get, they're getting paid so little. So then it's, uh, it's, that's also something we need to consider. So yes, it's true, we need to build these kinds of institutions, but I don't think that should come at the expense of, of uh, fortifying our, our, our yeshivas that educate the kids who are in the city now, not those, we can't forget about those who have left generations ago, but the kids who are in the city now, we really have to do our best to keep them, to keep them, uh, to keep them engaged. Two final thoughts. We talked a little bit about the mitzvahs that are involved in Kirov, um, maybe it even has the status of Atalus to Fashas, and who's obligated to, to pay for that, both as an individual as well as, as a community. But I think you teach two other lessons from Hanukkah, which again, is the most successful instrument we have in the Kirov toolbox. Um, we can learn two lessons from Hanukkah about how to successfully engage in Kirov, or, 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 or how we should go about engaging in Kirov. The first is, just by looking at the mitzvah near Hanukkah, you know, uh, in general, which is unique. Now, Hanukkah has three tiers. There's the Ner Ishu Beisoy, the basic mitzvah, one candle for the entire household. There's a the Mahadran, which is one candle for each one of the B'nai Habayis, but still only one menorah for everyone in the house. And then there's a the Mahadran Min Mahadran. One menorah, at least according to the Ramah, one menorah for each one of the B'nai Habayis, with the number of candles corresponding to that night of Hanukkah. We all fulfill the Mahadran Min Mahadran, or should all fulfill the Mahadran Min Mahadran. So, and that, that phrase... And Kashrus was stolen from Hanukkah. It's really this extreme, Mahadran, Mina Mahadran, is only found by Hanukkah. So Hanukkah were more extreme than almost any other mitzvah. We have Mahadran, Mina Mahadran, Kashrus, but again, that's borrowed it, it, or stolen. It really belongs by Hanukkah. It really belongs by Hanukkah. Ovkan Hanukkah, which is such a popular mitzvah, which has such broad appeal, we all become extremists. We all become ultra-Orthodox. We should be ultra-Orthodox in general. Why wouldn't you want to be ultra-committed to a Kaddish Baruch Hu? I don't know anyone who says, no, I only want to be half-committed. We should all want to be ultra-Orthodox. It doesn't mean you can't be nuanced. That doesn't mean everything in life is black or white. We can be ultra-Orthodox about being nuanced and seeing the grays and appreciating the, the, you know, the, the subtleties of life. But 
we should be, you know, as committed as, uh, you know, f- fully, without, uh, without any, any kind of uh, equivocation. Um, but it's only by Hanukkah that we have Mahadran Mina Mahadran. We don't have Mahadran Mina Mahadran by Matzah. We have gradations of Esrogan. But again, it's only found by Hanukkah. And I think that that comes to teach us how to successfully spread the message of a Kaddish Baruch to a broader audience. And that is by being principled. If you want to attract people, it doesn't come through compromise. It doesn't come through, well, you know what, in order to get them interested, I think we have to do this or that, even though we're somewhat uncomfortable with it. No. What attracts people is when we are principled, when they see that we are committed to our principles, even when it sometimes comes at a cost to us, and sometimes difficult, that is the most inspiring thing. What inspires people is the Mahadran Min Mahadran Jew, not when we compromise in order to reach them. And you see this from Avram Avinu as well. Avram Avinu, all right, again, was the created He had uh, tens and hundreds, who knows how many, thousands of followers who came with him to Eretz Yisrael on his pilgrimage. Um, but yet at the same time, Avram Avinu was known as Avram Ha'ivri, Avram the Hebrew. But the Medrash tells us he wasn't known as Avram Ha'ivri only because he spoke Hebrew, but because The whole world was on one side, and Avram Avinu challenged all of the prevailing um, uh, assumptions of that you know, ancient society. He was all by himself. He was an iconoclast. He stood alone. Yet, isn't it amazing that Avram Avinu, even though he was so principled and stood alone and challenged all of the prevailing norms of society, he was so countercultural, he was the most successful in Kiruv. So if Shach writes, he observes that that's, no, that, that's exactly the point. What enables us to be successful is not trying to you know, repackage Yiddishkeit in some woke you know, box. No, what we have to do is present Yiddishkeit as it is. With all of its countercultural components and with all of its uh, things that might rub the modern sensibilities the wrong way, not trying to be offensive, right? But if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. And it's that kind of principled um, commitment that is the most successful in attracting people to Yiddishkeit. There's a similar idea in the Medrash. The Medrash comes in the Post and say from Malachi, the guys to Aaron Akoin, that Taurus Emes Haisi Bafiu, Aaron Akoin spoke the truth. And he brought many people back from the brink of Avera. The Medrash comes to Aaron. He spoke the truth. And he brought people back from Averis. So obviously the Medrash here is teaching us that it's because he spoke the truth. It's because he didn't, you know, compromise. He didn't, uh, no, there were no apologetics. It was because of that that he was successful in bringing people back because people are attracted to that. Lubavitcher Rebbe, again, and, uh, no, no, one, no one outdoes Chabad in this uh, whole conversation. We have to give them their, their props. But uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe here has a fantastic horror on the Mishnah Mesefthus Avis. The Mishnah says Mesefthus Avis. And we could disagree with their methods, by the way, but yeah. But let's not, let's not get stuck in the weeds. But uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe comments on the, mi- the Mishnah that the Mishnah says, Aaron HaKoyim was Oyev Shalom Veroidev Shalom. He loved peace and he pursued peace. He loved people. He brought them close to Torah. So I said, Lubavitcher Rebbe, it doesn't say he brought Torah to them. You don't bring Torah to them. You bring them close to Torah. If you know anything about Chabad houses on campuses, but even beyond, they're happy to do a broad range of activities, you know, some that we might be uncomfortable with, as long as it's in their Chabad house. It's their turf. It happens in their house. You bring them close to Torah. They don't go out. To be Makar people, they, everyone comes to the Chabad house. It's a good marketing strategy as well, but, um, and, you know, in terms of community building, um, but 
it represents an important hashkafa. That, no, we bring people close to the Torah. We don't repackage the Torah and make it appealing or palatable to outside audiences. We have to present the Torah as it is. And that's really important in doing Kirov is that we shouldn't engage in compromises to do so. Ramesh is a tshuva there about what kind of activities can you make um, in order to attract kids to come you know, to shul. And he talks about having social dances. Ramesh says, if you're not going to have a social dance in the shul, they're going to go to other places to have social dances. Ramesh says, Kirov is not a uh, justification to have this kind of a compromise on the principles of the Torah. Not only is it not justified, it's not wise. It won't bring people closer. No one's attracted to that kind of compromise. People are attracted to principles. The principles can be nuanced. It doesn't have to be black and white, but it has to be principled. If it's not principled, it won't bring uh, people close. And in running Kirov activities sometimes, the Chazanishia makes a really important point. Sometimes in guiding individuals, you have to sometimes guide them, you know, to compromise on this or that. But as a community, right, because religious growth doesn't all come at once. You don't flip a switch and all of a sudden become, you know, nothing to everything. It's, it has to come in stages. And it might take people time to convince their family to come along with them. And you might have to tell them, you know what, compromise on this in order to gain something later. The whole principle of sometimes you have to amputate a limb in order to save the whole body. But as a as a moisad, as an institution that represents the community, says the Chazanish, you can't make these kinds of compromises. You can't. You can't, because it will enshrine it as part of our hashkafa, as something that's acceptable within the community and will blur the standards that we have in our community. So while it's advice that we give it to an individual, in terms of the community, we really have to be very principled in doing care. It has to be mahadran min mahadran. We can't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't equivocate, we shouldn't have any apologetics in the way that we present, uh, the way that we present Yiddishkeit. There's one other important yisoyed, I think you see, from Hanukkah about how to do kirif. Not only does it have to be principled, mahadran min mahadran, but also we have to think about the house. Near Hanukkah is lit, al Pesach beis It's lit outside of the house. In order to be chayv in Ner Hanukkah, you have to have a house. If you don't have a house, there's no mitzvah of Ner Hanukkah. Rashi and Toysis. Rashi and Shabbos, Toysis and Sukkah, right? That's why in Hanukkah we have two brachas on the Ner Hanukkah, because one, the other, to account for those who didn't have a house. If you don't have a house, you can't light Ner Hanukkah. But that's not fair. What about the guy who doesn't have a house? He's not going to be able to participate in this very special mitzvah. Rama writes about, you know, Chaviva. It's no. Hanukkah. Chaviva. It's a very special mitzvah. What about the guy who doesn't have a house? How can he participate? So for him, we made a second bracha. Sha'asanism. If he sees a menorah, he makes that bracha. Because he can't really light himself unless you have a house. You can't spread the light of Yiddishkeit unless you have a foundation, unless you have your own house first. If you haven't solidified your own house, you can't really spread the light of Yiddishkeit to others. The Dumna Magid over here, it's quoted in the Sefer, Oyo Yaakov, what's the name of the Vilna Goin? He asked the Goin, when should I start spreading knowledge of Torah to others? When should a person be mashpia on others? When is the proper time in the trajectory, in the arc of his growth that it's now time to spread Torah to others? So the Vilna Goin gave a marshal to this, of, it used to be popular, the Kiddush cups that he would pour into the middle and then would overflow into the little crisis around it. Yeah, so the, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about? You pour it and then it spills over. So the guy says that that's the, the muscle that a person should follow. That's the model a person should follow with regards to Kirov. When your cup is so full that it's overflowing and it spills into other cups that are adjacent to it, 
then it's time to do Kirov. However, just because you learned one sugya, you poured a little grape juice into your cup, doesn't mean it's now time to start spreading into other people's cups. You're not ready yet. You have to have so much in your cup. There's so many sugyas, so many things that you've been through, that now you're just bursting with uh, knowledge and, uh, and enthusiasm for Kaddish Baruch that it spills over into others, then it's the appropriate time. But you first have to have a house. You first have to, you know, make sure that you have your own, uh, your own foundation before you start doing Kirov. And therefore, the ideal candidates for Kirov are not kids. It's not adolescents. They're not the ones who should be doing Kirov. If you look over here, back at the Rambam, the Rambam writes, in my opinion, the Rambam writes uh, back in Ois Hay, when he's discussing the obligation to teach Torah to others. The Rambam writes, you have an obligation to teach your son, you have an obligation to teach your grandson. And he writes in the second line, Mitzvah ko chacham v'chacham Yisrael. And every Talmud chacham in Kali Yisrael, gamed es koal talmidim. When he's discussing your son, he says, Kishem shechayv odom Every man is obligated to teach his son. Every man is obligated to teach his grandson. Only a Talmud Chacham is obligated to teach Talmudim. So the Alter Rebbe over here in the Shulchan Aruch HaRav, says the only obligation of teaching Torah is on those who are Talmudim Chachamim. Those who are Talmudim Chachamim. Because they have a solid foundation themselves, and now it's time to spread the Torah to others. If you yourself are not a Talmud Chacham, he's a second year base Medrash guy, he should not be, forget about the 10th grader, he should not be doing Kiruv. He doesn't have a solid foundation, unless he's an unusual kid. doesn't have a solid enough foundation. He's not, he's not a Talmud Chacham. Every Chacham always has to grow. Right? The Chavaz Das writes in the Hakadamah, there's Perish on Yeradeya, fantastic. That's what we call a Talmud Chacham, a Talmud Chacham. Every Chacham has to be a Talmud. If you're wise, you'll actually always be learning. What it means is you're an independent learner. You know how, there's always more. Who can, you know, who's done learning? But you're an independent learner, and you have so much that's already spilling over. Yes, then you should be doing Kiruv. If not, I really don't think it's the right thing to do Kiruv. A person's not ready themselves. Should they be doing Chesed? For sure. For sure they should be doing Chesed. For sure. They, that's part of Chinuch, is training kids. If there's a kid who's marginalized on the side of the ball field, you know, the, the blacktop, whatever you should be in, include him too. Include him too. That's Chesed. But to start going out into other environments with kids who don't have the same assumptions, who grew up in a whole different kind of an upbringing and asking them to do Kiruv, we're putting them in a dangerous situation. We shouldn't be doing that. And I don't even think they have an obligation of miser. They don't have to give from their time to help others. At the beginning of a person's life, his primary objective is to solidify his own house, to solidify his own foundations in Yiddishkeit. Moshe Ma'adavadoim is, is, is miser and money. My, is it, my son is in the mirror now. We give him money. If he starts taking miser from the money that I'm giving him, Taking back the, I'm not giving you the money to make miser. When you make money, you'll give, give miser. You yourself on the taking end. You don't have money to support yourself. If you don't have money to support yourself, everyone agrees there's no obligation of miser. So, so, so to over here, if, if you yourself are in that stage of life where you're supposed to be solidifying your own foundation for a whole life ahead, where a person will miser to build a family and then spread out into the community, it's not the time now to be doing miser. That isn't the obligation. The obligation for youngsters is to be solidifying their own foundation. We shouldn't recruit them into doing, into doing Kirov. Rav Hutner writes about this in the Sefer Zikaron over here for Rav Hutner, he says the greatest thing we can do in terms of askanas and saving lives is creating salud balabatim, creating talmid hachamim. Creating talmid hachamim. And those who recruit, he says, tzirim, the young people out of yeshivas, in order to do Kirov, he says they know if they look in the mirror that what they're doing is wrong. He said, that's not what we should be doing. We should be creating Talmud HaChachamim. And in fact, over here in the biography of the Chazanish, well, this is very strong. 
Rafutna was really talking about because after the Second World War, so much of Torah was decimated that we have an obligation to rebuild Torah, and you know that was the primary focus. But the Chazanish makes a very another compelling point, which is that one Talmud Chacham could be mashpia on many more people than you know ten lower level Kira people, <coughs> right? Total lower Kira activists. So he says, if you were to create a one Talmud Chacham, it could impact Alfei Ravavas of Jews. So it's a good investment too, even in Kirov, even if that's what our focus is. He says, He can make a, a, you know, a movement of Kirov. Even more so than a thousand Askanam. So that, that's why it's, it's, it's critical that a person before engaging in this have a solid foundation themselves. Look, if a kid himself is not learning now, because it's the summertime, and you're going to put him in a filtered environment with, um, with, uh, with counselors and with uh, chaperones and some sort of seed program. Yeah, I think that's fine. Either way, he's not, he's not, solidifying. He's not coming at the expense of his own growth. And you're going to guard him to make sure that, uh, you know, that, uh, that he'll be either, you know, a protected kind of environment. If that's what a kid wants to do, fantastic. But I don't think we should be encouraging them to leave the base marriage in order, in order to do Kirov. But this goes hand in hand. With, with a final uh, observation. And that is we have to make sure our own homes are solid. Not only in terms of a person's own identity, his own house and those around him. The cure that he's doing can't come at the, at the expense of those in his own home. Near Hanukkah is lit outside the home. We have to have a solid home too. If let's say one, one's family is suffering as a result of having, you know, strange guests in the house, then obviously, obviously that's not something that we, we, should, uh, we should be engaged in. We have to make sure that we're protecting our own home. But at the same time, it is counterintuitive, but certainly true, and has been verified time and time again. Usually, there's exceptions to this rule, usually sometimes having what seems like uh, eclectic personalities in our home enhances the home and strengthens the people in the home instead of, um, instead of uh, coming at their expense. In fact, it enhances the Shabbos experience. It makes it even more pleasant and inspires the kids, inspires the kids more. And this is because when one is Oisik B'Tzar Chetzibor, person is Zeichet T'Tabanam Tamini Chacham. Here the Mishnah Bura writes this rule. Over here, Oisik Gimel. A person who's Mechazik T'Tzibor is Zeichet T'Banam G'dayla Yisrael. His children even reach higher Madregas. And he bases this upon, if you look at the Sharetzian, Elkanah. Elkanah was the wife or the husband of Chana. He came every year with her to the base of Mikdash to daven for children. After so many years, he finally said to her, Chana, I'm not going anymore. And Chana went that year on her own, right? He said to her, Hello, any toivlach I'm better for you. Let's just enjoy each other and enjoy each other's company and forget about this dream of having children. Chana did not give up on the dream. She continued to go. And that year that Elkanah ditched her, she finally was to have children. Why did Elkanah go every year? Not only to accompany his wife, but Chazal tell us he went every year to inspire others to be Eile Regal. He was trying to serve as a positive role model. And says, over here Mr. Brewer, when a person is zeichet to inspire others, and that's his mission, he's zeichet to have a Shmuel Hanavi. He's zeichet to have someone who impacted all of Klal Yisrael, to have, uh, you know, G'day Le'Tayra. And so too, if one is careful about lighting Neiris Hanukkah, the Gemara tells us, a person is zeichet to banim, uh, a person be zeichet to have wonderful children, because if you're zeichet to spread the light of Tayra, um, and Neir Hanukkah symbolizes the light of Tayra, ki Neir Mitzvah, the Tayra R, as the post says in Tehillim, a candle, the light, symbolizes the light of Torah. If a person is to spread the light of Torah to others, there's Zaycha to have Banam Tamir Chacham. So Rabbi said we should all engage in this mitzvah of Kirov in whatever way is applicable to us in Amir Toshem, by spreading the light of, uh, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to others in the appropriate way. May we all be Zaycha to see uh, Nachas 
from all of our children and ultimately to the light of Mashiach. Amen. Amen. If you can't do yourself, Eliyahu takes credit cards or checks. So, you know, next time you come, it's going to be fishing. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 